My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each week. And so ways you can support our ministry is first follow our Instagram page. Then you can like our Facebook page. Of course, you can listen to this online broadcast and make comments underneath whatever social media channel you listen to. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. for Pacific Standard Time for this podcast. And this will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast. We did take last weekend off, or last Thursday off, and we're re-upping this week talking about the subject matter, continuing the subject matter that we've been on for the last handful of weeks. But every Thursday night, we are coming together for this broadcast to give a live and better understanding of the materials that we are covering. So call this a deeper dive. And this is actually going to be a real deep dive because we are doing this material after we have already done this material on Sunday morning. This is a recap for us, but we're going much deeper on this Thursday evening. So if you've been following us online, you will remember that we are in a series called Atlas of the Heart based on Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart. And today we are talking about the biblical view of the emotions created when we are hurting. So hurting, H-U-R-T-I-N-G, not hurting, but hurting. So I am joined today with Sherea Bonner and Jake Flute, two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Sherea and Jake. How are you tonight? Hey Doing good. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope that we are ready to get into this. Um, we have endured some sickness amongst our team and so last week, uh, I was basically unable to get out of my bed because I was so sick. Uh, not with COVID. I did test negative several times with COVID, although who knows? I just isolated myself. Even though I was testing negative, I wanted to make sure that I only uh, infected the people that were around me the most. So Jake got infected, uh, of course, and uh, my kids got infected with whatever virus I had, call it Kevid, K-E-V-I-D, uh, for whatever affected me, the virus that specifically affected me last week. But I might cough a little bit. I still am struggling with some congestion, but uh, as you can hear, but I am totally prepared tonight on cough medication, um, sinus medication, lots of Sudafed, totally able to think crystal clear. Crystal. So I hope it crystal. So I hope it doesn't impede me um, too much tonight as we are covering Atlas of the Heart. I am excited to cover this subject and go over it. Um, what I'll say again, because on Sunday morning, I did cover this material for our Sunday morning sermon uh, series, which was live at Resonate. And tonight we are covering it even deeper because really I was only able to cover two of the emotions when we are hurting. And so we are covering this a little deeper and hopefully going over more than just 
two. So today, again, we're continuing our series on the human emotions and finding a biblical understanding of uh, emotions. Well, sure, yeah. And we lost Shreya, but she'll be back soon. I'm sure. Uh, remember that <laughs> emotions emotions are amoral. That is one of the premises that we have uh, definitely spent time with unpacking and discovering that emotions are not moral or immoral. They are amoral. So pre-fall, whatever you believe about creation, we know that pre, when sin entered into the human condition, however that happened and whenever that happened, before that occurrence, we see in the biblical narrative of creation, that poem, that Hebrew poem talks about the emotions being present. So uh, humankind, even God had joy. He had, uh, God had uh, a sense of delight when God looked at creation and said it was good. Also, uh, man or human, Adam, looked at Eve and saw with delight the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so there was delight, but also there was desire. And that's the one that we've really been focusing on because desire can go negative. The desire can definitely lead us down paths of wanting what is not necessarily the healthiest for us, whether that be the fruit of a tree or whether that be a substance or whatever it is. The Bible calls that lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh or the pride of life, where our desire enters into the picture and we want more of uh, what is there or maybe control of what is there having mm -hmm. such desire. So, so emotion though, initially is amoral. It's what yeah. we do with it, the result of it, the expression of it that can be deemed or judged as moral or immoral. So if you do take the creation story as literal, which we, yeah. we don't often at all. Um, Hi Shreya. Welcome back. Hey. Thanks. The Adam experienced loneliness, which to many yeah. people that that would be a negative type Expression of emotion. Or experience, that, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that was not godlike. That God did not experience loneliness, and so is that. What what morality do we put on that? Right. So, really, what we think in the Christian world. Oftentimes we think that emotions, the only emotion that a Christian can express or have or feel is joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And that's the only emotion that we can have. But oh, loneliness glad, or yeah, glad, happy, all those that are related to joy, we can have all the positive stuff. But when it comes to negative things, when we experience negative emotions, those mm -hmm. have to be from somewhere else. Yet... We've learned that sometimes negative emotions can have a definite positive outcome that when we experience a loneliness or we experience a sadness, out of our sadness, much can come. So we need to come up with a biblical view of emotion uh, when we're hurting and when we're, we're experiencing a level of hurt, uh, we need to come up with or to have a biblical foundation of those emotions that we are we are experiencing and those emotions if rob you can put that slide up for us those emotions are anguish uh, hopelessness despair sadness and grief anguish 
hopelessness, despair, sadness, and grief. So when I think about those expressions or those emotions, do I see God in them? Well, I think so. I mean, I, I want to believe that in my anguish and my sadness, despair, hopelessness and grief that God is there, but we need to discover how God is, is there. Um, there's something that I just want to bring up just introing before we get into, before we get into Jake's first topic of anguish. Uh, when I, when I say something like my feelings are hurt, when I say my feelings are hurt or you hurt my feelings, that idea or that phrase really does not have a lot of depth to it and definition. So when I say that old adage, hurt people hurt people, that sometimes is true. Uh, many times is not true. Uh, just because you're hurt doesn't mean that you're apt to hurt people. A lot of times hurt people are hurting other people but that's not necessarily the reason. That's not necessarily what it's coming from. But the reason why I know that is the idea of hurt or just to say, I'm hurt. There's no definition to, to that. Yeah. Are you like, okay, so you said some things that, that pinged me, that made me feel low, that made me feel sad. So like sad people make other people sad, you know, anguishing people make other people. What are we saying when we say hurt people hurt people? Because when we're hurt, we're actually experiencing a sense of emotion or an expression of emotion rather than some um, uh, kind of nebulous idea of the emotion of hurt. So hurt is not necessarily an emotion. It's an experience that or creates status, yeah. emotion, right? So when I cut myself, it hurts. Um, but actually, I'm experiencing pain. Um, my receptors are experiencing, you know, my nerve endings are exposed, and that tells my brain, uh-oh, danger, danger. So, so when I hurt myself, um, that definitely is the a catalyst for the expression or the idea of pain in my life. So just saying hurt people, hurt people, or uh, you hurt my feelings. Those are valid statements yet. What's more, or could I just uh, encourage us to say more than just you hurt me? Uh, because honestly, just saying that you're hurt doesn't give me any meat or footing to bring healing to the conversation. I have to then explore, okay, what are you, what are you hurt saying? Over. And what are you hurt over? And what are you experiencing because of that hurt? Uh, and, and it's because we all experience a level of hurt. If I could just use that term for now, uh, we experience a level of hurt differently. So what hurts Shreya's feelings, what hurts Jake's feelings is different than what hurts my feelings. I could get hurt over something that Shreya doesn't get hurt over at all. Jake can get hurt over something that I just didn't go, you know, buck up. What's your problem? That's not a good, a good thing to say. Um, so, so I believe that language is important. And so if Jake said something like, when you said that, it made me feel... Like 
this, right? Yeah. So, so we need more clarifying questions. We need to express ourselves. So, my children, if we want to put up that, my I'm feeling this. My children have this poster on the wall that I help them to express their emotions, especially this last couple of weeks. Rob, let's let's make it a little bigger. A, that'd be great if we can. Yeah, we there we go. Perfect. Yeah, there we yeah. go. So this is a local artist in Sherwood. She does a great job in uh, drawing these pictures and and putting emotion to these pictures. But if if you noticed, uh, or if you if you just look at this for a second, uh, each animal has a different expression on their face, which represents a certain emotion. And especially my five year old Kamita, I I try to help her to point to a different animal when she's experiencing something. She needs to point to a different animal. And if you've noticed on there, there's a smudge mark around the alligator board. And so what I discovered is most of the time when I was asking her, what emotion are you experiencing? She was circling bored. I'm bored. And so watching TV or doing something like that was creating boredom in her. And so we needed to do things that would help uh, curtail or express a different emotion than than boredom. So that was challenging. Uh, that's creative parenting, I guess, is to help our children to uh, be creative in their boredom, to figure out their own boredom. And also, I'm not I'm not their entertainment uh, center, so I need to be careful about try, constantly trying to entertain my children. But uh, but uh, maybe helping point her to a to a better uh, activity that would help her to not be bored might be a task of of mine when she's pointing to those different emotions. These are actually available online. I, I remember these back in the Sesame Street days when I was a little kid. They had How Am I Feeling or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood talking about feelings. Uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of that over this broadcast, but emotions are important. And how we're feeling is important and putting definition around hurt is important. In places that I go when I'm hurting, those places are anguish, hopelessness, despair, sadness, and grief. All right, let's uh, let's take anguish. Jake can, is going to take that step first. Step back one, one yeah, small step. Please. Yeah. Um, when we talk about emotion, the... The average human experiences what 87 different types of emotions. And so yes. that's what Brandon Brown's research has come out with that it is in the high 80s. And each one is lineated out between each other. Um, but the average human can name three emotions in their life yeah. happy, mm -hmm. sad, and pissed off. Yeah, and so angry. Angry. And this those are what we have language around. Those are what we have the words for. And so as we look to a biblical understanding of emotion to expand our understanding internally of, of who we are and what we experience, um, this will hopefully bring healing to the hurt. Great. Yeah. Okay. Let's Take talk anguish. about anguish. Anguish. Um, Rob, if you want to throw that first picture up there, you want to make it bigger for us. 
this painting is put out by Brene Brown as as the best image of anguish. And it comes from August Friedrich Albright Schenk, the National Gallery of Victoria, Melbourne. Um, if you just look at it and see the breath leaving the mother you staying over her dead um, baby sheep, lamb, thank you. Uh, and if you know anything about crows around them, a crow is called a murder of crows. And so the this this feeling of anguish is encapsulated in the, in this in this painting that it's a it's a giving up it's a relinquishing it's a end of things um unbearable shock grief and powerlessness just feelings are washed over you and so the biblical word for anguish, because anguish is actually in scripture a lot, is meye. And God experiences anguish and communicates anguish quite a bit. Um, when it talks about God's womb churns, especially in relationship to the Israelites, you can pull a photo down now, Rob. In relationship to the Israelites or even um, in, in other books of the Bible, we're talking about Job's anguish that he sat down on a heap of coals and cut himself with pottery so that his sores would feel better. That is a sense of anguish. But our passage of anguish comes out of Jeremiah. So you want to throw that up there, Rob? That would be great. Jeremiah, in context, is the the suffering servant. And so lots of people put that on to Christ. It's just messianic. Um, it's indicative of, of Jeremiah's ministry that he is a sorrowful, an anguished person. Um, God makes Jeremiah take his sash, bury it in the river, and then a year later go and dig it up and then wear it just so that Jeremiah be re remembering of Jeremiah's anguish. And as Jerusalem falls, and then later on Jeremiah writes Lamentations, usually thought, the, the anguish is pouring out of him. And so it writes, Oh, my suffering, my suffering, my pain is unbearable. My heart is in turmoil. It throbs nonstop. I can't be silent because I hear the blast, the trumpet, and the roars of the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land is ruined. Suddenly my tents are destroyed, my shelter. In a moment, how long must I see the battle flags and hear the blasts of the trumpet? So in this, this word of, you can pull it down there, Rob, thanks. This word of anguish is internal organs, it's womb, it's, it's your guts, it's your bowels. It is your whole body internally is churning so hard that you just want to curl over and die. And that, that is the best example of anguish that, that I have. And so does anyone want to put, add anything in there right now? I'll pause. Little breathing room. <laughs> Little space. And mostly I just think about what Brene Brown said in the book about um, receiving a difficult phone call and her legs just giving out um, mm -hmm. and finding herself on the ground. And I think um, that's a great picture of what it feels like when we feel anguish. Yeah. Can't even hold your body up anymore. 
I think even though we are a long ways away from Texas, when we heard the news last Tuesday, a lot of us experienced a low level of anguish. Imagine those scenes, feeling maybe having some empathy on what the parents may feel like or the relatives or or even the people around them that we have, we experience their anguish with them. I think that's the beauty of being human as well is that we can experience emotion with each other from a distance. And so when we hear stories coming out of, um, I always get the name of the town wrong, I'm sorry, uh, in Texas, give me the name. Uvalde? Uvalde, when we had the stories coming out of of the medic going in and his daughter's in the classroom and he, Mm -hmm. he is able to identify her. You know, just that, just those horrific stories but also it's a it's a powerlessness of why this shouldn't have been this is not not a thing that that feels natural that i'm having to go through and so that is that is the best anguish picture that we have i think that what i think about in there i think of three things one is very current uh reality and then two are kind of older stories uh for me but one uh david wilkinson old-time preacher and author back in the day did the theology of anguish or the repent the repentance into anguish and and when you if you ever look at david wilkinson i I don't agree with david wilkinson's theology probably at all um, but I have no very, idea. It's very guilt-based. We need to move it's away from that a little bit. It's very guilt-based. It's yeah. very guilt-based. You should be experiencing so, anguish. You should be experiencing anguish. So uh, years ago, I was introduced uh, to some of his books and then uh, more in the last 10 years to his theology of anguish. And and there is a repentance or a uh, a, a sadness or a, a sense of anguish for the the lost or those the lost quote unquote or those that don't know Jesus that are we are we reaching out to those does that create a sense of urgency pain or anguish inside of us well I would say that there's some uh, biblical premise for that where people were crying out for Jerusalem people were crying out for those that didn't know God they wanted uh, people to turn back to God there was anguish in the prophets that would call out to God uh, to uh, not you know that God would not have wrath on on uh, God's people things like that so I so I so I I see the point yet anguish is not uh, I don't think something that we really experience um, in the spiritual it's it's anguish is in the physical that leads us to the spiritual or to spiritual ideas and the reason why I know that and have experienced that myself is the physical realities around us create sometimes a tremendous amount of pain and that level of anguish that we experience we see things in that anguish we see sometimes we experience and see god sometimes we experience and see death 
And sometimes we experience and see evil and hate. Mm -hmm. And so that leads me to, well, this in Tulsa, uh, what happened this last week uh, where somebody was in such, I guess the claim is that he was in such pain. He took it out on his medical professional where he walked in and, and shot, you know, innocent people, murdered innocent people. And the claim now is that this person was experiencing a level of pain that they did not know how to reconcile in their life. And I don't know the entire, you know, details because I wasn't in that person's head, but that is a level of anguish where he saw and experienced evil and, and uh, murder um, in his anguish. He saw that was the answer. So I see that anguish can lead us to very, very desperate places mm -hmm. uh, to where we become very immoral and can become very immoral in our anguish. And that's uh, the, even that's to, the, the response is the Yes, the response immorality. to anguish, right. So that becomes the immoral side of anguish. Yet, yet seeing God is like a moral side of anguish where and and i i believe that you know you can flip you know in that where you can see god and death at the same time um sometimes but if you're under an excruciating amount of anguish so uh, it's it reminds me kind of, of a, a pun what's the pun excruciating anguish oh excruciating anguish yeah so i think about uh Gorecki's, uh symphony of sorrowful songs number three mm -hmm. And how that symphony expresses, if you ever look that up, it's a, it's a gorgeous, beautiful, uh, uh, composed um, Henry uh, Gorecki, uh, where symphony number three, Sorrowful Songs number three, uh, that was actually performed and written in light of Auschwitz and how this uh, supposedly the story or the 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 myth or the kind of the tale that's that's told which i believe definitely you know could have happened and it's you know very reasonable that uh this young girl was in auschwitz and she was suffering mm -hmm. um and uh, you know her parents and everybody has died around her were executed murdered she knew that that was her fate as well and she uh she drew um she drew Jesus. Jesus on the wall, carved Jesus into the wall of uh, Auschwitz. And so I don't know if that, you know, whole idea um, played out because some people think that that was a myth and some people think, well, that's, you know, you can't prove that that actually happened. But it's yet, a great story. It, yet it's a better story. And it probably to many, many, many people that happened they drew some form of god on the wall they experienced god in their in their anguish so i so i think that i think that in the maya that that hebrew idea mm -hmm. that down to your bones you're rattled that you can yeah. experience a very moral um spiritual expression out of out of anguish so those are the three things that i thought of when you're talking looking into the the moral aspect of anguish if we move into into praxis um the desert fathers and mothers that would that would go out and put themselves into anguish 
be it through yeah. fasting or through ascetic lifestyles, um, like the stylites standing on the poles or the uh, anchorites that are walled into rooms, this this feeling of anguish that, that encapsulated them. Um, out of that comes a closeness, a, a ridding of things that hold you back from like the presence of God, because when you're churning and rattling to your bones, I don't think not much else matters after a while. And so now we have to look at a way out of anguish because we got pretty dark there, especially going into Auschwitz. Um, so we're going to play Fred Rogers. Hopefully this won't be pinged on our, yeah, we might get, we might get dropped here. My mother used to say long time ago, whenever there would be any really catastrophe that was on the, in the movies or, or on the air, she would say, always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. That's why I think that if news programs could make a conscious effort of showing rescue teams, of, of showing who, uh, medical people, anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy, to be, to be sure that they include that. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. So the way out of anguish is to either be a helper or look for those around you that are staying in empathy and in solidarity with you. I think anguish is a real, is a real emotion. It's a real thing and it can last for decades for your entire life. I think mm -hmm. many people are, are living in continual anguish because of past and hurts and hurts, habits and hangups is, is, my Fred would say, I think, out there somewhere right now. He's here, it says. And so finding our way out is either being a helper or finding those to help us around us. And so be it a counselor or a friend or a confidant, how do you find your way out of anguish but to, to help? Yeah, I think we need people to help us in anguish. That's an impossible when you're dead on the floor you need to be revived by somebody and yeah. and we need our helpers around us Definitely. we listen to we listened to roar this morning talk about uh living in your resurrection that that we've all in another way of saying it is remembering your baptism remembering mm -hmm. when when you became a a new being reborn that we know we will experience everything still, but that we have hope, which Sheree is going to talk about hopelessness. So there we are. Yeah, uh, hopelessness, despair, and hope, because um, they all go together. Um, you mean sadness? What? Yeah, aren't you going to include sadness in that too? I didn't think that I was. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we'll see how far we get huh totally so 
So when it comes to um, hopelessness, um, it's easiest to understand when we contrast it with hope. Um, and so in the book, Brene Brown outlines um, like three indicators of hope. Um, the first is that we're able to set realistic goals so we can see a way out of our situation. Um, the second is that we're able to figure out how to achieve those goals or to find um, alternate pathways if our first plan didn't work. Um, and then the third is having agency or believing that we are capable of uh, following our pathway and accomplishing those goals. Um, so hope comes out of struggle when we are tested and can actually change um, our situation. So hope is something that we can learn and practice. And I think that's a really important thing um, to just kind of tuck in your brain. Hope is something that we can learn and practice. Um, sometimes though there are systemic barriers or like things are rigged against us um, and this can lead to hopelessness. Um, hopelessness comes out of negative life events mixed with uh, negative thought patterns, um, especially feelings of self-blame or like we can't do anything to change our circumstances. Um, so if we were to look at it in the, um, the opposite of that framework set up by Brene Brown, um, we feel hopeless when we can't set realistic goals when we can't figure out how to achieve our goals or find alternate routes, and when we don't have the agency or ability to change things. Um, hopelessness can be about a specific situation, um, or it can be about our life in general. Um, and that's where despair comes in, when we feel hopeless about our entire life and our future. Um, there's a quote from Rob Bell that defines uh, despair as the belief that tomorrow will be just like today. Hmm. Um, but because hope is learned, small disappointments are opportunities to practice and to keep us from falling into despair. Um, and so one of the things it talks about in the book um, are three P's to resilience by Martin Seligman. The first is personalization, and that's understanding that it's not just us, um, that there are outside forces that affect our situation too. The second is permanence, um, recognizing whether the situation is forever or if it's going to be a big deal in five minutes, five hours, five days, five years. And then the last one is pervasiveness, um, whether we think our situation affects our entire life or if we're able to lean into the areas of our life where we feel hopeful or successful or alive. Mm. Um, when I was thinking about um, biblical examples, what I really landed on was um, an example of hope uh, that I find very inspiring. And it's going to come out of Jeremiah again, because um, Jeremiah is one of my favorites. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 32, um, there's a story where um, Jerusalem is under siege. Um, they're going to be taken over by the Babylonians any day now. 
Um, and Jeremy goes out, or Jeremy, Jeremiah goes out and Same buys thing. a field. Could have been Jeremy. <laughs> Could be. He buys a field, um, which carries the promise of being able to plant crops, to build a home and a life. Um, and instead, Jeremiah never gets to use his field. Um, but it's symbolic of the promise that God is going to bring them back someday. Yeah, the uh, one of the tell signs of a false prophet is that, and it's like the best example of what Shrey just gave, is that a false prophet never gives the hook of hope. Mm. Mm. And so um, those around us are prophets in our society that are only spewing hate, only spewing negativity, only spewing the... Um, the world is going to burn. We're just going to blow off earth here. Those are the false prophets that we are experiencing because there's no hook of hope. I'm sorry. That was just my first little, little jab there. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, when you were saying, uh, the idea of permanence where, you know, the personalization, the, the hopelessness turns into a permanence in our life. Mm -hmm. I believe that's when people struggle with depression, um, that is one of the signature ideas of their hopelessness, which can cause a cycle that could lead into uh, clinical depression, which could lead into some serious, serious implications behind depression. Because that idea that this is never going to change and mm -hmm. I'm always going to be this way and I'm always going to feel this way. There's no there way has out. to be, yeah, there's no way out. I think the Christian, the, the love your neighbor in this depression, not discounting the emotion, not discounting the experience, but coming in and loosening the chains of permanence. I think that is what, uh, you know, bringing hope to somebody that is uh, experiencing a level of depression, uh, sometimes needs that tomorrow can be different. Um, not necessarily need someone to step in and make tomorrow different. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and we can, we can spend the time and my, my wife is really, Amanda's really, uh, good at this. Um, which sometimes I'm not so good at this probably because I struggle with the same things that the people that she works with, uh, struggle with. Um, and so it's hard for me to find my own answers, let alone, you know, help other people with their answers. Uh, but she's really able to stand in a gap with people that struggle with a sense of permanence and hopelessness or depression where she's constantly, she's, she's been friends with somebody for literally, oh goodness. I mean, tw probably, let's say 20 years. She's, it's been literally almost two decades of being with a person and walking them through some serious psychological challenges. And, and she's been with that person speaking the same, can I say the same damn message? I mean, she has spoken the same damn message for 20 years. And I'm looking at that going, could, could I be that consistent with somebody? Mm -hmm. She has that giftedness of bringing people hope in their permanence 
in the hopelessness. It's pretty, pretty profound gift that she has with people that, um, and actually I've never really seen in anybody else because there, most people are like me, you know, here's, here's the keys. Now open up the door, you know, and we give people all the tools and all the things. And here's your list, you know, wake up and take a shower and smell the roses, start your day off new. And when they don't do it, what Amanda does, she comes in with that same consistent message over and over and over again. It's pretty profound. Yeah. That's definitely. why, that's, that's why I said it the way that I did. Cause I'm just like, how do you do that? Um, it's, it's a giftedness, I think. It does kind of sound like the prophets to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, let's move into sadness. A little bit of sadness and a little bit of grief if we're gonna if we're gonna move on. We can. We can Are go we back ready? to I think looking at hope though as as function, um, hope is I think is hopelessness or despair is the expectation that tomorrow is going to be the exact same and exact same road. But the hope is that the next day will be different. So there's a there's a there's a resurrection or a or a sunrise going to happen and so uh was probably almost a decade now ago um, kevin and i went to see jürgen molman uh speak and uh he is the theologian of hope and he uh was in the the german army during world war ii still alive today um he had to go to the front line, laid his gun down, and walked into the prisoner of war camp. And so, the YMCA. He walked into the a YMCA camp. The actually. YMCA camp, and I don't, yeah. I don't know, probably somewhere. And so, but coming back and having a theological education that he had, he had to figure out how to communicate and how to build Christianity back from one of the largest catastrophes of human rights ever that we've committed and we have christianity has allowed that to happen and so it's the idea of hope that things can be different things can change and that how you do that is through transcendence and imminence and transcendence is thinking your way into a greater being and imminence is functioning or behaving in a way to give you a better life, a better being. And so uh, we were in a seminar class with him and he said, sinking is transcending. But it's in his accent, that's that's what we thought. Or like, sinking. Hey, mean, to, go, uh, to go down is to go up? How does this work? And it was that's thinking. That's what we thought he said, yeah. Thinking is transcending. And so I think mm -hmm. to to help someone out of their hopelessness and out of despair, even our own, it is to is to fundamentally change the way that we think. And I would say most of us is change the way we think from scarcity and negativity to gratitude and thankfulness and positivity. And so that's that's my stick on hope. Well, really, it's the only way out of, I guess, hopelessness is to identify subjects of gratitude where 
our brain, Richard Rohr would say that our brains are actually geared like almost wired in the neural pathways because we experience so much negative stimulus that our brains are wired to negative stimulus. So we're addicted to it. We're like addicted. This is why this conversation is so enthralling to, to us. It's like, wow, sadness and grief and anguish. Um, because, because our human brains are, are conditioned for very negative experiences. And we run away as Richard- For Rose, the function we, of self-preservation. Yeah, yeah. And we run away from mercy and grace and gratefulness. It's so difficult, as Richard Rohr would say, it's so difficult to spend time in gratefulness because actually our neural pathways in our brain are not even channeled sometimes, conditioned to experience gratefulness and, and, and thankfulness. So we go to sarcasm and, mm -hmm. and joking and coarse joking and yeah, because it's easier to be, to be there. I'm trying to funny it's our easy. way out of emotion. Right. And, and so moving into sadness, sadness is actually necessary for production in the human experience. And so when we feel or experience sadness, that is a, like a key to uh, productivity or to be very powerful. Why? Because you know now the opposite. You're experiencing the opposite or the the uh, you, instead of happiness or joy, you're experiencing a melancholy type experience and you want to move. Eventually, you're wanting to say, oh, I want to get to joy again. And the only way to get to joy again is to be a highly productive, powerful type individual. Almost have a dopamine experience in your life to move you um, out of sadness. So the saddest people are the most powerful people in the in the world. I mean, Elon Musk is not necessarily a jocular, happy guy, right? So you think about some of the most, uh, r the richest uh, people out there, they will claim to have like some of the greatest authors, JK Rowling and some of the people like Mark Twain and some of these people that are very profound, prolific writers the wrote creatives. out of, yeah, they wrote out of sadness. Um, they wrote out of a sense of, of melancholy. Sadness is not depression. Depression is not sadness. Depression is a cluster of emotions that are symptoms, rather. There are sy it's symptoms, cluster of symptoms that are clinically uh, diagnosed over a long period of time. Um, but sadness is not grief, and grief is not sadness. Grief can have elements of sadness, but it's not the same thing. So sadness is that sense of of not depression but a, a sense of of like being under or maybe miss being misunderstood or not understanding or kind of being below i guess a a norm line of well you should be you know happiness is the pursuit of happiness is the american dream well i'm not experiencing any dream i'm experiencing the opposite of dream and so our Christian uh, response to that is usually, why are you so sad? You know, or we say, don't be sad. Uh, wipe away your tears. I sometimes say that to my kids. You know, wipe away your tears because uh, we don't like people. Um, we don't like that state or to feel that awkwardness that's mm. created. 
But some things are beautifully devastating. Some things need to be deconstructed in our life in order to be reconstructed. And so sometimes our lives need to be deconstructed. Sometimes we need to feel what it's like to be human. Um, and like in theology, not so in the clouds, theological and so super hyper spiritual where, you know, all we need is Jesus. You know, and we say things like that to one another, just lean on Christ. You know, what does that even mean? You know, when we say yeah, Jesus is not Jesus. right next to me right now. Yeah, right. exactly. I don't even like Jesus left the building a long time ago. That's what sometimes we feel that way. And sometimes we need to feel that way because that gives us a very human experience to journey through and to journey out of back to the spiritual. So we, we like a good, sad movie. We like good, sad stories. We're almost addicted to sadness in a sense as, as human beings. Um, but you know, you, you've, you've heard that saying, you know, I just needed a good cry. You know, I just needed to like cry it out. Really, and sometimes, sometimes we do. Yeah, it's where our creativity those that, comes out of. Yeah, it's those where that, our passion that comes out of. Those that struggle with sadness or experiencing sadness, or they're not having an expression of sadness. I think this is this is an encouragement for you. If you're stoic in your expression of sadness. I think that's something to journey through to make sure that you're not repressing or, or pushing something like having repressive anger in your life. Because repression in our lives create uh, different dysfunctions in our life or can yeah. create different dysfunctions. Well, that, that repression, that depression is the suppression of emotion so much so that right. you are slogging through the negativity in your life yeah so much so that you can't dig your way out um jamie left a comment on the end kevin do you want to uh do you want to grab that it. how do i see it are you on guest chat or comments on your right hand bar there oh right here i'm seven weeks in the most yes right now what great time look at you be here tonight my wife and i experienced two miscarriages so far this year and it sucked one of them is uh, was pretty was far, pretty far along. along. We chose to talk about our experience and feelings openly. It brought us so much peace. I've always worn my emotions on my sleeve, but this was a huge step for my wife. This resonates with me. Very good. That's awesome. So, Jamie Harris, thank you for joining us um, tonight and and discussing this with us. I'm probably a, a great like like how you articulated yourself there losing children um creates anguish that could be creating anguish and of course uh we know the word grief um many people have experienced grief and i think grief is very unique in different experiences so we can have a grief of some kind of loss like a loss of a job you know or a loss of a you know a dog like our dog passes away and there's a grief that we experience uh, those have a certain place in our experience they're they're not necessarily the same as the loss of like a human life in our in our human experience that is like a next level like people that have 
experienced miscarriages, my brother and his wife, um, you know, probably a week before the baby was supposed to be or due to be born, um, stopped the, the heartbeat stopped. And so, uh, stillborn, of course, you know, what happened and it was a, it was a heart wrenching, um, moment for my family and, and for my brother and, uh, his wife and especially just my, my sister-in-law and what she was experiencing in that, in that mm -hmm. moment in her life was excruciating, excruciating pain. And, you know, in those moments when we are experiencing a level of grief, uh, that we, we experience that level of grief and, and that's where we need like the people, our helpers around us to give us the most grace. Because, you know, who knows what's coming out of our mouth or how much anger we're expressing or how much tears we're crying and, and such. And so, so we experience losses. There's other places of grief too, like when our parent is, you know, 90 years old, they've lived a long life and they pass away. And it seems very like at that moment, very normal. Yet a Christian response to that kind of death is they're in a better place. And we, we have like statements we use to kind of like pad, pad things and take away like the emotions that, that can be created. What did you say, Shreya? Yeah. Spiritual bypassing. Yeah. 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 It's like, a, it's like, well, I just lost my dad. I just lost my yes. mom. I, I mean, I know she was 90 and he was 95 or whatever, but it's still a sense of loss. And so we, we go through that, that initial longing, like I wish that they were back just one more day yeah. um, type of thing. Uh, and then the earlier and earlier that that happened. So I lost my mom when I, well, I lost her six years ago and I'm 49. So 43 years old, my mom passed away from breast cancer or complications from, you know, breast cancer. And so she, she passed away when she was 40, 43. And mm -hmm. so, or when I was 43. So the amount of grief that I experienced was, you know, immense. It also depends on what kind of relationship you had. And there's so many different elements to grief that we can talk about for a long time, but it's basically the feeling of losing or the feeling of loss yeah. and the feeling of loss. There's psychologists that have tried to categorize uh, that feeling of loss and Kubler Ross in 1969, that's how old this study is, came up with the stages of grief. And what's really interesting about, uh, what's really interesting about the stages or the theology of, excuse me, the stages of grief is number one, it was studied in people that were terminally ill. And so it was a pre-death experience of the individual. Mm. And so they were coming to terms with their own death. 
other people were experiencing their loss of life too as the cancer developed or the terminally yeah. terminal disease developed in their life but this is actually a study that that the the denial the anger the fear the acceptance those stages of grief that always have been categorized um as the grief process um that actually is for like categorize of terminally ill people what they were experiencing and finally coming to in acceptance right i i do believe that we experience those stages and we experience those emotions of fear and anger and loss and acceptance sure but i don't necessarily believe it's in a sequential one two three four or five may butt in a bit kevin yeah, go ahead. I think that the the idea of grief is that you have, I think, retro grief and future grief. Yeah. So whatever position you're saying at, and I think, Jamie, that you were looking at your soon-to-be kids. Chat. What's up? I, I, I wasn't on the chat. Let me go back. No worries. That. that you were looking at your kids of what could be, what could happen, and then... I think a lot of us are in that place that that life taken too soon life even taken at the right time it's the what what could have been next and that's where grief lands at but also the grief in the past for those that we've been with is the that things used to be this way why can't they be the same i think that's yeah. that's the past grief that we have that we were we're moving through um well, I think that I think the yeah, goal saying, the saying different... goodbye to a dream they definitely yeah and so yeah there's there's different there's different um, types of there's grief. different like I don't want to say categories but different uh, grief subjects or grief ideas and the first is called acute grief and basically acute grief is like a sadness or an anxiety in the loss. Maybe you're having some remorse, some guilt, some shame. You know, all that is is within it. But but it's focused on initially the a person who has died. And usually. And someone in your life has passed away. And you have the shoulda, woulda, couldas. You know, I wish that I would have. Um, one more day, the remorse of not mm-hmm. maybe saying being the right thing or doing the right the, thing. Yeah, yeah. So we have like bitterness, maybe. Um, why didn't that person change? You know, they died and and left me. You know, with with all of this unreconciled uh, guilt or shame or or anger or or whatever it is. So that acute grief can dominate a person's life for a period of time. And that period of time usually is, you know, depending on who the person is again. And, but it's a, it's a period of time. And that period of time can be a very long time. Some, sometimes we just don't emerge out of our grief. I think loss is, is very real. And we carry our losses for the rest of our life. Just like we carry our gains, we carry our losses for the rest of our life. We will remember that person or that experience with that person or carrying that child or uh, you know growing up with that person or whatever it is it, it's a very acute focused grief 
Uh, but then you have an integrated grief. That's the next idea or subject mm -hmm. of grief. And basically this is like a loss of, um, how can I say this? It, it becomes a part of who you are. This is the long-term grieving process or, or experience. You know they're gone, but it's now an integrated experience into your life. The thoughts, the, the feelings, um, the emotions you're experiencing are now a part of you instead of such a dramatic, acute experience, a shock, mm -hmm. right? So you're now carrying some things with you. Go ahead, Shreya. Um, I, I have a good friend who, um, had a miscarriage also. Um, mm -hmm. one of the things she shared is that your grief never gets smaller. It's just, you grow bigger to be able to hold it all and still have yeah. room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like love, right? Where my, my children, they, they're both adopted. And of course, Nataya is a lot older. She's eight years older than Kamita. And when Kamita was given to us through adoption, Nataya was very afraid and very scared that she would be replaced. It was a normal, you know, oh. very reasonable. Every, uh, every feeling. older sibling. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be replaced. Um, and we would tell her that we have love, enough love for both of you. Our love has grown for the both of you. And I think that the idea of love is very important when talking about grief because when we lose someone, we really realize how much we loved them. And that's mm -hmm. when our love really comes to like full maturity uh, when we are not experiencing life with them anymore. We take people for granted. We, you know, take experiences for granted. Oh, they'll call me tomorrow. But when that chance is gone, uh, that love definitely grows and matures. So, so when we lose people in our life, our, our love or our uh, personhood grows enough to integrate. That's an integrated belief or integrated grief. But then we have a, a complicated grief. And complicated grief basically is the moment where grief doesn't become integrated. It becomes uh, basically interfering with life. This is the case of like when, when you would ever say, which I would, I would never say this, but if you ever said this about yourself, I'm having struggle moving on, right? We never really move on. That's we move through, but we don't move on we experience and journey through, but we just don't forget, you know, something. But when something becomes very interfering, that the acute grief, you're experiencing that for so long and it becomes an unreconciled idea. It's like the gyration or the remuneration of your mind. Um, it becomes very complicated. It keeps like reappearing. The acuteness keeps reappearing. And I've actually experienced this with other people where they'll lose a parent early. Um, they'll lose a child. That can definitely happen with losing somebody younger, like a child um, or a sibling, a younger sibling early on. I've experienced that with others, like a younger brother died in the teenage years and that 
older brother was, let's say, 18 and his 16-year-old brother died, that can be a very complicated uh, experience. And so life becomes, in what Shreya was talking about, hopeless and that permanence of hopelessness is embedded inside. You'll, it's very easy to see this today in our newest technology of social media where people are expressing themselves in their grief, which I think can be, you know, an important experience for some people. I, I don't necessarily think, you know, social media is really sometimes a safe way to express ourselves because of the people that, you know, could unsafely respond to us, but we can see people's grief very visibly now. And we can also see where it becomes complicated. And sometimes I, I can witness that. I have had complicated grief in my life uh, when it came to certain relationships that I had, uh, a parent in my life that I had a complicated grief. I could not recover. And so I needed help. And usually with complicated, no, I'll not, I won't say usually, Often. exclusively with complicated grief exclusively, you need help and uh, with counselors and and people that can walk alongside of you to uh, walk alongside of you to help you through complicated grief it's a very can be very traumatic and very um, very permanent in your psyche and you definitely need help well with acute grief and becoming integrated it's different than complicated um, you can have disenfranchised grief. We're not going to really talk about that. Disenfranchised grief is where you don't know where it comes from. It just ambiguous. appears in your life and it's ambiguous grief that you don't know what you're grieving, but you're grieving it. That's called disenfranchised grief. There's not a lot of studies on that, but, uh, but, uh, it is a, is a real thing, but I want to give us three tools that I've learned in my life. Uh, when it comes to grief and grieving. And I'm going to walk you through when my mother passed away, these three ideas that I used um, and I still use today and help. And I've helped different people with these, these ideas with grief. This is something that is not new, um, but I just really want to, uh, I want to give them to us today. So when we're experiencing grief, which, you know, we are hurt and it's, we're hurt. We have grief. We're hurt that that person died. So six years ago, my mother passed away. She, uh, I was able to sit at her bedside the day before the night before she died. Um, and then I was traveling again the next day to go visit her again and my stepdad called me and said that she had passed away so i was stunned i pulled off to the side of the road of course i was you know driving uh traveling there and i pulled off to the side of the road and i f i was in a parking lot of a big box store like a costco or something and i was in the parking lot and i couldn't drive anymore i i couldn't do it i, I there was nothing inside of me physically that could turn the car back on and put it in drive and drive home i couldn't do it I, it's almost like I forgot how to drive. So that's how it, it shocked me. I, it stunned me at, at 43. The first tool that I think that is really helpful in when you lose somebody is 
to develop or to carry an image. And an image is a tool. It's an image tool that, that we can use. We can draw it out on a piece of paper. Um, we can, we can, you know, do, you know, whatever, whatever we want to in drawing or coming up with an object. Uh, for me, that became my, uh, my mother's picture, uh, the picture that hangs on my wall, actually, that I, I have of her, um, where she looks and she is experiencing a sense of professionalism and joy. And she's, you know, my mother was beautiful. Um, the second picture that I, that I hold on to dearly is when I didn't know her when she was 19 years old. And that was her debutante picture. And that was a picture of definitely like she looked, you know, beautiful and all dressed, you know, to a, like a debutante. Um, and so those two pictures of when she was very young and probably about, uh, probably about a 15 year old picture now of my mother, uh, that was a professional picture that was taken and hangs on my wall. That tool, that, that, that picture or that drawing or whatever to hold on to, to that, uh, to, to exercise visualizing, looking at it, um, and, ex and experiencing it. Now that's, that becomes my, my next, uh, next thing. I actually, and I know this is going to sound a little bit maybe hyper spiritual, but when I was getting ready in the morning to go, uh, to go to, um, my mother's bedside again, I was getting ready and I was in the shower of getting ready and such. And at, it was at eight thirty, eight thirty-five. I experienced something where I almost passed out and I felt and experienced uh, a vision. And I just, I just almost just collapsed in the shower. I was just sobbing because I just couldn't handle what was happening to my mom because she was in excruciating pain and she was just a very skeleton when I saw her. It was just a really a difficult image. Um, when I almost passed out, I visualized a moment when I was a, when I was a young boy, I was about seven years old and her pineapple upside down cake. And so these images I have never forgotten two pictures and the pineapple upside down cake have become my images of grief where I, I hold on to those, those images. Um, and that's something you can draw out, but it's an actual image that you, you hold on to, um, in your life. The second tool that I want to give us is an object an object of grief is really important. It's an object of connection that, uh, that you see and you visualize, and it could be this for you. I have strawberry blonde hair and my object of connection to my mother is my hair color because my mother for her entire life tried to dye her hair exactly the same color 
as mine. <laughs> and I, I know that's funny sounding and kind of goofy, but it's, it's, it is, it is what, when I see my hair, I see my mother and I see her trying to dye her hair and that's it. That's a story. And that is, she, she actually cut my hair once and brought it into the hair salon and said, I want you to I, match I need this. this hair. <laughs> and so she tried to, she tried to dye her hair exactly the same. I, I mean, she got close, but, uh, but she felt like she could never attain this exact, now it's kind of graying on the sides and balding and stuff, but but I'll never forget that that's my object of connection that some people say that I look like my mom more than my dad. Uh, I think I look like my dad more than my mom. So it's not my look. It's actually my hair is the object of connection for me. But then there's the experience of connection. And I have a video of mm. that my stepdad put together and that video is my experience of connection to my mom. That when I want to connect to my mom in some way, I watch that video that he put together of all of her life, of all of her pictures, of all of our pictures together, of all of his and her pictures together, all of her friends, music, you know, Andre Bocelli um, is an experience for me because she loved Andre Bocelli, Celine Dion is an experience for me within that video. And sometimes, and I know it's gonna sound crazy, but it's my experience of grief that I need that experience to sit there and visit mom again and to go through that video. Sometimes I'll sit there and watch it over and over and over again just to capture an image of what she looked like because I don't wanna forget what she looked like I don't want to forget what she felt like, like when she used to call me cakey bird and hug me and laugh. And some of those pictures remind me of those things. Uh, and so in my grief of losing my mom, I have those images. The strongest is that picture and the pineapple upside down cake and her debutante picture that I hold in a, in an album. Uh, the object is my hair color. And I know that sounds funny, but it is my hair and her identification with my hair color, trying to get the same hair color as me. And then that video became probably in the last six years, one of the most important experiences of grief that I've had that I've been able to return back to when I miss my mom, I go back to that video and watch it uh, several times. So whatever your image object and experience developing those things in your life for those specific mm -hmm. individuals or those specific experiences with those individuals are three tools of grief when you experience acute grief these three tools are proven actually in in psychology to move us into an experience of integrated grief where now we are experiencing life alongside the loss instead of in spite of the loss or directed at the loss. We are now walking alongside of the loss and the loss is with us for our life and that our life, as Sharia said, grows bigger. So those are my ideas and thoughts. And, uh, and I don't know if it's advice, but, but, uh, 
just Good. some thoughts about about grief and my own grief. So yeah, thank Thanks you. Story. Excellent. Of course. I'm reading. I'm trying to catch up on all the and all the things. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great, Rob. I don't know Thank if Rob, you, do you want to, you want to throw your comment on Rob? There you go. Oh yeah, yeah, we have to have that. So, I think to go back into the classifications of of grief for a moment, um, and having those objects and images. I mean, it's awesome that we talked about uh, miscarriage. And thank you, Jamie, for bringing up yours. I'm sorry. I really am. Um, the miscarriage is is not an accepted grief societally. Yeah. And that's why it's like, don't tell anyone you're pregnant for at least two months mm -hmm. or the first trimester's over because if you miscarriage, you don't want you don't want the embarrassment of telling people that why? Yeah. Why do you, we make people go through that grief alone? It's a very lonely grief for women, as they have told me. There's a lot of shame behind it. There's mm -hmm. a lot of blame around it. Unfortunately, those are, you know, our society really, you know, puts the onus of miscarriage on the mom. And, mm -hmm. and then, of course, that is carried into the grief process. And, and you know, if you are having like those toxic words spoken over you, uh, you are working through that simultaneously, which is yeah. unbearable. And Jamie, you're always fair to use the F word around us. <laughs> yeah. I saw that. I, yeah. I'm hoping that you did. You did to that person. That was pretty awful. Um, another yeah. idea of complicated grief is we've had quite a few friends that, have lost their parents to dementia. And so yeah, mm -hmm. it is years and years of little deaths. Yeah. And I think, I think Rob, what I hear from your experience right now, if I can just talk about that for a moment, I think with, with what you're going through right now as well, it is a little deaths with your grandpa. And so yeah. the grieving process, there's no finality around it and it is just a constant reminder of of what could have been what was and what you're missing all the time and so to carry even those images now mm -hmm. yeah. it's especially important as as grief moves forward i would encourage us as you know there are of course you know, cultural, religious, human responses to grief that are really many times inappropriate. And, and we discount, we invalidate. Uh, why? Because, I mean, if I put grace around it, as, of course, I want to just punch somebody in the face sometimes when they say certain things. Uh, we just don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with loss. And that's unfortunate that we haven't spent time journeying with people in loss. And especially like to some people, 
losses that are obscure or losses that are unknown or unfamiliar. Uh, those losses that are, might be obscure might be somebody with like dementia. And how is that a loss? Like our, if we've never experienced somebody with dementia, we don't know what that loss really is. And we don't, we're not experiencing that. Uh, we've never experienced that. And so that becomes like an obscure, what are you talking about? Or what does this mean? Um, you know, with miscarriage, I think that, that many people, you know, use, well, you didn't have a developed relationship with the child. And so we respond in such like, it's really just poor, science. yeah, it's just science. That's just crazy to, to say that to somebody and probably felt they, crazy. They obviously the don't know science at that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, so, uh, so we respond really poorly uh, to people because we're just unfamiliar. We don't know. Um, the, the grief that we, you know, most identify with probably is just that normal losing your parents at an old age grief. And we normal. still respond really poorly. Oh, they're in a better place. Oh, no more pain, no more suffering, no more, you know, like, like there's just no more, no more. And, and so we respond really poorly to loss in general. So I'd like us as a, just a community and Christians and just people that are, you know, dis discovering and journeying spiritually together that we would learn to explore anguish, hopelessness, uh, despair and sadness and grief in such a, such a more profound, mature and responsible way. Because the helpers, when we need people around us, when we need our med teams, the people that are going to pick us up off the floor and actually carry each other's burdens, like the Bible says, that we walk alongside, um, walk alongside each other, that we can really, really love our neighbor and be a brother mm -hmm. and sister to that person. Jamie, you didn't bring up a sensitive subject. We actually brought up the sensitive subject. No, the... Uh about fighting abortion. So, oh, um, I, I would say that the, that that person who is pro-life, we'll just put those words on, are not actually pro-life. They're just pro-fetus. Yes. And yes. so they don't understand why anyone would make the decision to mm. get an abortion. Or they don't understand that if you restrict access to abortion, maternal death rates grow up. Yeah, they don't understand that. Like that's, it is a very immature view of, of life. Mm -hmm. See, when you're pro-life, when you're pro-life, you're pro, you know, the baby's life, you're pro the mother's life, and you're actually pro the care of her and the baby's life. So when you're pro-life, you're not just pro-life for nine months. You're not pro-fetus. You're not just pro-moment. You are pro, you want the whole picture. Yeah. And so you are, are anti-death penalty. Yeah, you're not, you're not you like. Can't, you can't be out there killing people <coughs> right. and want them to be born into poverty. No. So I don't think these are I don't think these are political subjects. I think that they're they're spiritual subjects. And if we are so pro like 
like okay so this this new uh new law that's being enacted that to turn in the the mom that that doesn't has an abortion like to turn her in right um we're so pro like christians are so pro that like turn in the moms that are going for abortions but we're not like pro red flag laws like somebody's handling a gun inappropriately and putting people's life in danger um to be non-pro red flag law and to be pro turn the woman in for an abortion yeah that's not pro-life thinking but let me keep and my so, ar-15 says so that's more important than than anything right. else you can't be pro-life and pro-death penalty at the same time it just doesn't make sense you can't so be pro-life and pro-war right there's lots of inconsistencies i think so like if we were really pro-life there would be policies and legislation on the table right now to care for and for the mother for for 18 years um, and the child for 18 years it wouldn't just be a nine-month experience there would be medical care there would be child care there would be affordable uh, child care when the child is young there would be all kinds of programs if we were really pro-life that's what we would be putting on the table wow We've talked a lot about a lot of things. Thank you for all that we, uh, bro flug. How have we not been in contact? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, love you too, Jamie. Thank you for joining us. And thank, ev thank you everybody for joining us, whether you're listening to this tonight on Thursday night, or you are listening to this sometime in the future, or maybe on Sunday morning on our online broadcast this will be replayed on sunday morning at 10 a.m pacific standard time if you want to listen to it again and uh, jot down some notes or you can just get on our social media feeds and you can listen to it over and over and over again to your heart's desire um, we encourage that we encourage you to participate and interact with us like you've done so well tonight again atlas of the heart that's what we are going over especially over the next handful of weeks and yes, that is, we're going to all raise up these books, right? Mine's Atlas, yeah. Atlas of the Heart is by Brene Brown, and she is looking at mapping meaningful connection in the language of human emotion and the human experience. And we're looking at a biblical understanding of human emotion. And I encourage you to join us each and every week. Tonight, we talked about anguish. We talked about sadness. We talked about a hopelessness, despair, and grief. And I hope that uh, you all got something out of tonight and were able to carry some things into your life. Thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, thanks, Jake, and thanks, Sherea, for participating with us tonight and including your thoughts. And we'll close with that. Good night, everybody. God bless. Good night. Good night.